This podcast is intended solely for educational purposes and presents information of a general nature. It is not intended to guide or determine any specific individual situation and persons should consult qualified professionals before taking specific action. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not those of Milliman. Hello and welcome to Critical Point, a podcast brought to you by Milliman. My name is Jeremy Engdahl Johnson. I'm with Milliman's media relations team and I'll be your host today. I'm excited to be joined today from our annual uh, international internal conference. Uh, I'm joined today by Joanne Buckle out of our London office. Hi, Joe. Hi, Jeremy. And also Kevin Manning out of our Dublin office. Hi, hey, Jeremy. So Milliman works in a lot of different countries. We've got a unique global healthcare perspective. You both are taking advantage of that expertise and have put together a series of research papers looking at the commonalities in different healthcare systems around the world. I'd like to talk about those three papers today. And if I'm correct here, the, the three topics are population health management, risk equalization, and wellness programs. So having teed that up, Kevin, just tell us a little bit more about this research project and what you guys are trying to accomplish. Uh, thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, I, I think one of the challenges in healthcare and in health insurance is that really every country has its own health system and the, each country's system is different and has its own peculiarities and own idiosyncrasies. Um, and often it has its own terminology and language and acronyms and you name it. Um, and and I, I guess one of the challenges that brings is it can make it very difficult for for insights and thought leadership and articles to be portable in other territories. Um, and, and one of the things that we wanted to do here was try and leverage some of that extensive ex expertise and experience we have in, in the US and elsewhere, um, but to try and do it in a way that was you know, a little more stepping back from the detail of the specifics of the system and, and look a little more at, you know, what are the issues that are common to different systems? What are the sorts of bigger ticket problems that people are trying to tackle and address? And if you can focus on some of those issues, those are very common right across lots of different health systems. Um, and you could therefore maybe get some insights that you can then, you know, use in lots of markets or that, that could be helpful to people working in lots of different countries. And what, what are some of those similarities? What kind of things are we seeing that are in common across different health systems? Um, so, uh, I mean, I guess ultimately uh, people are really trying to tackle some of the same problems. They're, they've got, you know, typically limits on resources. They're trying, they've got a budget. They've got uh, some finite resource that they can use. And they're trying to get the best outcomes, whether that's best outcomes in terms of patient experience, in terms of uh, improving healthcare outcomes uh, in terms of working conditions for people uh, working in in uh, health delivering health services um, you know so a lot of those t those sort of very big picture kind of ideas which then translate into you know how incentives are built into systems to remunerate people or how you go about investing in particular treatments or particular technologies you know a lot of those issues are, are the sorts of things that are being tackled by health professionals and health systems in, in lots of different countries. Um, and really our focus was to, to try and pick some of those types of issues and, uh, and really focus on those. How about you, Joe? What's, uh, what are the commonalities that you see? I mean, you, you have worked in some very different sorts of markets. 
Yeah, and and I would say typically any any new market that I go into, and I, I've worked in many different health markets in different parts of the world. Any new market that I go into, I'm I'm normally faced with somebody telling me that the issues that they have are unique to that market. Um, and my experience has been that that's absolutely not the case. That almost all of those big challenges are challenges across all the different health markets that we look at and they manifest themselves in different ways but all health systems are are struggling with how to get the best health outcomes and the best quality for their populations um, how to deal with the new drugs and technologies that are coming on the market and determining whether or not those are effective use of funds um, in in a as Kevin said, a resource-constrained environment. Um, They're trying to work out how to get optimal productivity out of the health resources that they have in terms of um, people and technology. Um, They're trying to work out how to align incentives across the system so that um, uh, health professionals are, are paid for outcomes rather than activity. So all of these things tend to be common in in whatever health market you're working in. And, and as well as some of those, those very sort of patient-centered things, which are around um, how to ensure that, that young people are starting their lives on a, on a healthy basis and putting them on a healthy track for life and that they're looking after their own health. Um, and things like end of life care and making sure that, that that we're providing end of life care in a in a suitable dignified manner and and it's a good cost effective use of resources and allows people choices at, at difficult points in their lives so I think those are common across most systems and and really don't depend on how any particular system is set up and paid for and they don't really depend on whether the population is young aging they particularly skewed to one demographic or another really poor or mature those issues are, are common across lots and lots of different systems all right so let's let's dive into um, some of the the topics that you are exploring uh, one thing that actuaries are, are good at is is looking at things on a population level. So, w- what kind of lessons have we learned, kind of worldwide, about population management? So, I think the the lesson that jumps out at me most often is that most systems at the moment are talking about population health, and they have a population health um, mantra. And they have certain tactics that they're following, certain uh, certain sort of tactical things they're doing in the population. But the piece in the middle about turning that mantra into tactics via some kind of strategy seems to be missing. And one of the things that, that we have tried to do is to really set out some basic principles around if you're going to implement a population health management program you need to be very clear about what your policy goals actually are Um, and certainly in lots of systems I work in that that sounds really basic but it's actually really difficult to do because you have to go from saying we want to improve population health as your mantra to setting some really specific and measurable goals around what does that actually mean in practice and 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 thinking about some of the trade-offs so does that mean we want to 
improve population health in aggregate? Um, does it mean we want to reduce inequalities in outcomes for health? Um, does it mean some really specific things like reducing certain rates of chronic disease or certain rates of infection? So, so taking that sort of population health statement and turning it into a set of measurable goals is, is the bit that I see missing in a lot of the debate around population health management. What we've, what we've tried to do in the paper is to, to sort of use some examples and some case studies internationally um, uh, that will help just sort of underline some of those, those points that Joe was talking about. And while some of this does sound qu- quite basic, a lot of it is sort of traditional actuarial control cycle type idea of, you know, as you, as you set out your goals and then you start to design and implement a, a solution, that important phase of, of monitoring the experience, evaluating how that's going and, and feeding that experience back into your design phase so that you're constantly, you know, correcting, uh, you're changing course, you're improving your system all the time and, and making sure that you're, you know, that you're, you're sort of tracking the outcomes in a way that gives you kind of actionable insights, I think is very important. Any particular examples of programs that stood out? In the NHS, there is a fairly mature population health program in Manchester which involves not just health but also education, adult social care services, housing, a whole range of different um, aspects to health and and what we call um, sort of social determinants of health Um, and, and that has been pretty successful I think in terms of of setting out at least its policy goals and its population segmentation quite clearly and saying we want to focus on certain parts of the population and we want to focus on certain outcomes Um, and they have really set themselves out a pretty nice framework uh, in in a way that that other parts of the NHS I think haven't managed to do as succinctly and, and as successfully. It, it's too early to know whether or not it will be successful in achieving those aims, but at least they have, uh, as Kevin said, they've sort of started the the control cycle. They have at least set out what they're trying to do, and they've therefore got something to measure against. Um, so I think that's a that's a pretty good example. You mentioned the um, you know social determinants of health. Um, it seems like the NHS would be well positioned to use that sort of information uh, effectively since it's got kind of the entire population under its purview. Um, I think some, some systems have struggled with how to deploy that sort of information and kind of where it can be used, right? So one of the great ironies of the NHS is it, it has the entire population um, cradle to grave. It, however, does not have an integrated data store with even all of the health services that that population touches, let alone all of the other types of services that impact upon health. So um, some parts of the country have, have made quite a lot of progress in putting together that integrated data store, but it doesn't it doesn't uh, exist at a national level. And so we're still very reliant on local initiatives to bring together those data sources and then draw inferences from that much richer source of sources of data. Um, but we are making progress. There has over the last probably three to four years been a recognition that that's the direction of travel that we need to move in. Uh, sometimes as actuaries, we get very frustrated because people ask us to do analytics when they haven't 
done the necessary investment in the data infrastructure to make those analytics possible. I think that still happens quite a lot in the NHS and and there are ambitions to do sophisticated population health analytics, but um, without necessarily the recognition that you need two or three years worth of solid historical data to run those analytics on. And we're only in some cases starting upon that, uh, that journey of putting that data into one place and linking it all together. And then the other thing is 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 that that bringing together of data sources is is very dependent on context, and in some parts of the world there are obviously uh, strict privacy laws against that, and in other places it's easier to bring that that data together. I think what we've we've not done a good job of as as actuaries and and as other professionals we've not done a good job of articulating the power of having that data in one place and being able to draw inferences on it in terms of improving people's lives and that's a conversation that that needs to happen just to to maybe add to what you was talking about there um i do feel you can with population health management the, the nhs is a, is a great example and, and some of the insights there i think are, are very useful you could sort of be led then to take a view that population health management is all about huge transformational overarching systems and that this sort of paper is only relevant to you if you're the minister for health or somebody senior in a you know in a government department in a in a country somewhere but I, the techniques and the ideas and the considerations here apply really to any program that you're introducing to try and influence or manage the health of any population whether that's the population of the United Kingdom or a, a small population for uh, you know a health plan that you're you're responsible for whatever that might be you know we've seen lots of PHM population health management type initiatives of different scales um, and some successful and some not so successful we've seen interesting ones that you know one in one in Delaware where uh, you know a really interesting program where they introduced uh, food prescriptions for for people with uh, issues around diabetes and they thought well food security is a is a big challenge for uh, for people with diabetes and rather than necessarily just prescribing medication that they would have a system where uh, you could have prescriptions to to go to effectively a, a sort of mobile food bank that would come and give you access to staple goods and so on which was a, a very nice idea but it it sort of never really developed anywhere because they weren't gathering any data to understand how successful the initiative had been um, only people who selected to enter the initiative stayed in the initiative and those people were there was already a selection bias in terms of the people who went in there um, and they weren't gathering anything other than survey data to try and understand how successful the initiative had been um, and I think there's lessons in this paper for for anybody with a bright idea that's trying to influence the health of any particular population big or small um, to, to understand maybe how you might go about setting that up in a way that gives it the best chance of being successful. Yeah, I mean, it seems like not having the greatest data is an issue for many healthcare systems. Isn't that pretty universal across a lot of these situations? Yeah, I think I think it is, um, and a lot of data quality, rightly or wrongly, comes from uh, how how doctors and facilities are paid. Um, and that obviously influences the granularity and the quality of the data that you get. Typically, the data that's used for reimbursement is of a higher quality and accuracy than data that is that's gathered that isn't used for reimbursement. And I think there's a lesson there, uh, particularly as we we move to fewer fee for service type reimbursement strategies that um, that 
that that quality of data needs to be protected and that granularity of data needs to be protected and we need to come up with different contractual mechanisms and different ways to make sure that the data quality is sufficient to give us the insights that we need going forward. And that's a big danger that I see in, in a lot of the movement away from fee-for-service, which I think, I think we all would agree that um, there, there, are, there are good reasons to move away from fee-for-service reimbursement, but, but that potential uh, reduction in data quality is, um, is, a, is a big concern that we need to address. So, and I think dealing with poor quality data is a is a challenge in in lots of countries in lots of different spheres. Depending on what you're trying to do, it's it's one of the issues that's touched upon in another of the papers, the risk equalization paper, um, which uh, is is again trying to take a sort of a practical ap- approach to a, a a challenge that lots of different countries and lots of different uh, systems are facing around how best to introduce or maintain or up, you know, update a risk equalization scheme or risk equalization system. And, and one of the main challenges that uh, lots of countries face is access to the right level of data, the most granular level of data. Um, and I guess that paper, one of the things that it tries to draw out is some lessons internationally for you know how you might deal with that situation if you don't have perfect data, and, and we rarely do have perfect data. So what sort of approaches you can take to, to deal with some of those types of issues? Talk more about risk equalization. I mean, how, how's it affecting populations around the world differently? Yeah, so risk equalization, you know, if we think about some of the bigger issues that, that uh, health systems around the world are trying to tackle, you know, one of the things that Joe mentioned earlier was really around, you know, access to healthcare, equity, and risk equalization is a, a way of protecting uh, equity and access to healthcare for older and sicker people. Um, it's also a, a really important way of understanding how you remunerate hospitals for uh, the patients that they cover, and there needs to be some fairness in that, otherwise it gives a, a sort of disincentive for hospitals to treat the sicker or more complicated people because they're not going to be rewarded or remunerated appropriately for doing that. Um, and, and risk adjustment plays a, a very important part there. So, And I would agree with that. It's a, it's a broad challenge uh, across all health systems uh, in that risk equalization or risk adjustment or predictive modeling, whatever you want to call it, um, really the essence of it is trying to work out what needs people have for health services um, and what their state of health is and therefore how that drives their need for health services and and the biggest confounding factor or the biggest thing that that makes those models difficult is that often historical use of health services is driven more by the supply that's available in the marketplace and less by people's actual health status. So the biggest challenge of of any risk equalization system or any risk adjustment system is trying to disentangle those effects and work out how much of historical utilization is driven by availability of health services and how much is driven by true underlying health status. And and that challenge is is common across countries, but has different impacts depending on the system that you're working in. So so the NHS is a very supply side driven system. The budget basically exists to 
to provide certain services and tends to be siloed into the suppliers of those services. Uh, other health systems tend to be much more demand driven, but still at their heart, they have this issue that um, people use health services because they're there as much as because of their own health status. Kevin, you know, we've been talking a little bit about risk equalization, and I'm curious to hear what's been going on in, in your market. What's the, the Irish story of risk equalization? So uh, risk equalization has a, a sort of a slightly checkered history in Ireland. Uh, risk equalization tends to result in money changing hands somewhere, um, and, and often the people who are paying the money don't like paying it and the people who are receiving the money think they should be receiving more and and that can lead to lots of challenges including you know legal and political uh, type issues the irish approach to dealing with the legal challenges and an interesting one we had a, a particularly unique sort of set of circumstances i i guess in ireland that led to uh, quite an extensive uh, series of litigations through the irish courts that ultimately ended up with the original risk equalization scheme being being thrown out by the Irish Supreme Court. Um, and it was back to the drawing board at that stage, and the Irish government needed to introduce something that, I mean, the need for risk equalization hadn't gone away um, just because the scheme had been thrown out. So the Irish government went back to the drawing board and, and came up with a, a, a sort of a practical solution that uh, involved money changing hands in a sort of a uh, a roundabout risk equalization scheme that, that was initiated through the Irish taxation system. Um, and I think part of the rationale for that, I think, was that the Irish taxation system was the, was going to be more robust in terms of the, the sorts of legal challenges that could arise. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't a perfect scheme by any stretch of the imagination, but it was a, it was a solution to a particular challenge that allowed... Uh, risk equalization payments to start to happen. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, risk equalization is a very difficult topic um, and different countries have, have gone down different routes and some have made very complex risk equalization systems. Some have said, actually, given the current set of data that we have, let's do something pretty simplistic. I mean, at the moment, the, the Irish example is at the fairly simplistic end of the risk equalization spectrum. Um, but no doubt that will change over time. And every time there is a change in the way that the risk adjustment methodology works, there'll be, a, as Kevin said, there'll be a winner and there'll be a loser. Um, and trying to balance all of those different concerns at the same time is, uh, is, 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 not, um, is not to be trivialized. So one of our jobs really uh, as actuaries is to advise on implications of of changing the systems and to think about the incentives and the disincentives that we're creating in the system um, and also not create an environment where you are um, promoting behavior that's that's not necessarily desirable from a policy perspective so an obvious an obvious answer to risk equalization is to cherry pick lives that you get overcompensated for in the risk equalization system and and try and not get lives that are undercompensated so there becomes an entire secondary market in guessing who is overcompensated and who is undercompensated and that takes up a huge amount of time and energy which you might argue is not particularly productive in the context of the health system as a whole and I, I think that's a, a hugely important point in terms of 
aligning those incentives and the, the blunter the tool in terms of the risk equalization system clearly the more obvious the opportunities for for that type of cherry picking behavior are for for the wrong incentives to be built into a system and and for the wrong behaviors to be or not the most productive behaviors to be encouraged and it does come back to that challenge we talked about earlier around data you know you can build a a very sharp and very agile risk equalization system if you've got the the perfect data to do that, um, the the less data you have, or the less granular your data, the harder it is to to do that. And and I guess that is one of the challenges for you can introduce a risk equalization system, and it, it may be at the simplistic end. I think it's important then to to sort of build the enablers for making that a more sophisticated system over time. Um, and that might be a long play, but it it may be about building the capacity to gather the data that you need to make a more granular assessment of risk and sharpen your sharpen your system so that it isn't such a blunt, a blunt instrument when it comes to trying to understand what are the key drivers of risk here. And that agility point is actually really important because obviously treatment patterns change over time. And if you take, for example, the historical cost of uh, somebody who has type 2 diabetes versus somebody who doesn't have type 2 diabetes but is otherwise the same risk profile, there'll be a, a certain difference in cost and that certain difference in cost will be driven by historical treatment patterns, maybe even at, at very specific areas of the country. So trying to roll that forward and say, does that historical disparity in cost hold true in in two years time for a country as a whole or for a slightly different subpopulation or when there's new drugs and treatments being rolled out the entire time um, you're forever chasing your tail in effect because you're always relying on that historical data and, and you're never taking a forward-looking approach to it so we're taking a global perspective but given um, that I know a lot of American healthcare actuaries I, I wanted to get both of your you know, reaction to this question. Um, what's the best thing and the worst thing that American healthcare has exported to the rest of the world? I think the best thing, that's probably the easiest one to answer, that the best thing that it has exported is a whole range of different micro experiments that we can learn from. I mean, one of the things that I often just say, say to my non-US clients um, when they push back or express any skepticism about using lessons from the U.S. is that the, the U.S. is an amazing experimentation hotbed. So whatever you want to try anywhere else in the world, it's been done in the U.S. at some point in the health system. You just have to find that use case and figure out the lessons from it. So because the U.S. is not one system, because it is so fragmented, there are all sorts of little policy experiments going on all over the place. And, and that's really helpful. If you can interpret that in a local context, that, that gives a huge amount of really valuable lessons. So, so I think that that's great. I mean, it comes at a, at a great cost to uh, the US and US citizens. But I think in terms of lessons for the rest of the world, then, then I think that's really helpful. Um, the worst thing that they've exported... I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. Um, I, I would struggle to, to sort of pinpoint the worst thing that the U.S. has ex exported, but I guess it, it kind of links into maybe the, the come that, that Joe said about the best thing. You know, I think the cost of healthcare in the U.S. 
gives a kind of an international uh, jadedness when you, you start trying to talk about lessons learned from the U.S. You kind of point to some really interesting stuff and say, well, in the U.S., they're doing this. And there's a very immediately dismissive, yes, but look at look at how much Americans spend on healthcare versus everybody else. Look at, look at the out- health outcomes that they get relative to the spend is so much worse than everywhere else. And because of the, the sort of the fragmentation in the U.S. system and some of those in, inherent challenges that you guys have in the States and, and maybe some of the inequities that are built into the system potentially, it, it becomes easy almost for somebody internationally to dismiss some of those really valuable insights and learnings and exports that Joe was talking about. Has anybody worldwide figured out kind of the overutilization problem or is that just a, a chronic issue for all systems? I, I think it's a chronic issue for all systems. It, it, it depends um, on the incentive structure um, and it is different in different places around the world. But it, yeah, it is, it, it is a chronic problem. Um, and I don't think anybody's really got to the bottom of the old health needs versus health wants. Um, and health wants is a perfectly valid thing in some societies and and it depends it's a real policy question it's not really an actuarial question it's a a policy question as to how much uh, economic resources governments want to divert to to fulfilling people's health wants rather than their strict health needs but a lot of the countries that we work in we we have long discussions with them over they want to set up say essential benefit packages and and what the word essential means is different in different countries and different cultures and different contexts so there is no actuarial answer to that that's a that's a policy question but really our role in that is to highlight how much it costs to potentially offer different kinds of services and to fulfill those wants and, and to project out that those potential costs over a long enough period that policymakers can make an informed decision over the coverages that they offer. Yeah, I think I think that's a really important point. I, I, you know, I think I don't think it's appropriate for actuaries to come in and try and set health policy in in any country. But if if policy has been set, it it needs to. Uh, well, it needs to be said in a way that's informed by facts and, and evidence and information, and I think we can we can help with that modelling and, and provide that understanding. Um, and I think also then if, if policy has been set in that way, helping to deliver that policy, helping to provide the tools and information to, to uh, carry through on that, it, it, we have a very important role to play there. Okay, I know one of the other projects that you're working on is a global view of uh, wellness programs, which are obviously pertinent to any kind of population health management. What are you seeing globally from wellness programs? And I I always um, kind of brace myself whenever I'm asking actuaries about wellness programs, because they will cut to the quick in terms of pointing out what works and what doesn't, you know, the numbers tell the tale, right? But what, what are we seeing globally? Yeah, I think wellness programs are quite interesting, because they have evolved a lot over the last 10 years Uh, the best ones that i see are really heavily evidence-based which sounds very obvious but but actually most of the um insurers and providers of wellness programs don't necessarily want to go back to first principles when they're setting up a wellness program and say, well, what does the evidence actually tell us? Because there's a lot of work to do that. You, you've got to go through the evidence. You've got to figure out, as Kevin said, your objectives, what population you're trying to target. You've got to then 
do your evidence review and work out what targeted interventions you need to put into your wellness program. You've got to work out whether or not it's cost effective for you as a payer to put those interventions in. Uh, you've got to form third party relationships often to provide the services and, and interventions that, that you need to offer a full program. Uh, you've got to follow good behavioral economics principles and behavioral psychology principles around engagement, which is still pretty uh, undeveloped and immature in, in most wellness programs. So most wellness programs understand uh, understand the principles around loss aversion. They understand the principles about um, people discounting future benefits and you know I want to eat three donuts today but um, I'm trying not to think about that effect on my health in 30 years time they they understand those basic principles but we haven't yet seen the next generation of wellness programs where it's very targeted to you as an individual and your individual psychological profile so the example I always use is that um, if you look at what motivates me as a person versus what motivates my husband to go for a run around the block. It's completely different motivations. And yet we would get offered the same wellness program. Uh, if you if you gave my husband five pounds, he would go and run five miles. But that's not going to get me off the sofa because I'm just not interested. But if you sign me up for a race in 10 weeks time, then I'm going to go out and run five miles. So it's it's trying to get to the bottom of those sort of psychological differences and what motivates people and build those into very personalized wellness programs. And we've not yet seen that next generation done well, I think. I, th I think that's a very interesting concept of personalized wellness programs and, and that sort of next generation, which I don't think we have seen yet. I'm wondering how technology fits in with that, Joe, are, are, is the ability of uh, wearables and apps and apps on your phone, uh, does that give you a capacity to, to target a little more accurately in some of those areas and, and develop something that's a little more personalized? I, I think so. I, I have seen some quite interesting work being done recently in terms of mental health and behavioral psychology apps and, and things which use both physiological and self-reported signs and symptoms to look at your mental state and your level of stress at different points in time and then combine that with general demographic information to really make predictions about what's likely to motivate you at certain points in your life because again it's not going to be stable over time what motivates you as a 20 year old will be different from what motivates you as a 50 year old um, and what motivates you when you are particularly stressed and and there's a whole load of things happening in, in your life will be different from what motivates you when you're going through a relatively stable period of your life. So I, I've seen some interesting things looking at using wearable technology um, to try and, and really bring together all of those different aspects and move away from just the wearable that's, that's tracking your heart rate and, and looking at um, a more sort of holistic view of, of you as a person and then engaging with you as a person on that level. Of course, that type of holistic view brings in some of those concerns we talked about earlier around data and data privacy, and people are, you know, naturally will have concerns around, you know, whether it's their employer or their insurer or whoever it might be, having all of this information about them, uh, these, this holistic information about their, their health and their mental health and the activities that they that they get up to and and so on. So, those are always going to be challenges that wellness programs will have to will have to 
try and address. Um, and I guess the the more tailored the, the programs become over time, the more data they're going to need to to uh, achieve that successfully, and, and the bigger some of those data challenges are going to be. All right. Well, thank you both. It's, uh, this has been fascinating, and I expect we'll be catching up in the future on this as we dive further into this, this project. Uh, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Kevin. You've been listening to Critical Point, a podcast brought to you by Milliman. If you would like to subscribe to Critical Point, you'll find it on the Apple Store, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We'll catch you next time. Uh-huh.